Good morning. How's everybody doing today? It's doing well. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Uh, my name is Alec Zaccaroli. I'm a pastoral intern here at Burke Community Church. Uh, Pastor Marty is on a sabbatical, a well-deserved sabbatical until July. Um, and so uh, I am standing here in his, in his steed today. Um, you know, it's funny. My daughter, Rebecca, yesterday, she, she swam in a swim meet, and uh, she's 13, but they bumped her up to swim with the 15 to 18-year-olds, and she did great. That's a little bit what it's like preaching here. Um, you know how it is. Uh, Marty and, and Michael do such an exceptional job, um, and so uh, if you're a first time, please come back. You want to hear, you want to hear, uh, you know, Marty has spoken truth into my life in amazing ways. He's a big reason why I pursued uh, a life in ministry and seminary. So uh, if, you're, if you are a first-timer, you really want to hear from, from him. Okay, so let me just open us in prayer, and we'll get underway. <clears throat> Father God, it is indeed an honor and a privilege to be able to open up your scriptures and to read your revelation and to know this precious gift that you've given us through your word. And Father, may our response to you this morning, both in, in the lyrics we sing and in the words we, we talk about, Lord, may our, our response to you just be bathed in appreciation and praise for your glory. Help us this morning, Lord Jesus. Send your Holy Spirit to guide us through this scripture as we talk about this morning what it looks like when people turn away from you. Help us, Lord, to turn our hearts to you, to be attentive, and to be open to your, your leading. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in April, uh, during an interview with New York Times writer Nicholas Kristof, Serene Jones had this to say about the resurrection of Jesus. She said, for me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That is a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb and three, three days later he wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes sort of an obsession, that seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. Now, Dr. Jones um, is not just another academic. She's the president of Union Theological Seminary. She went on, actually, in the interview to, to deny the virgin birth. Indeed, Christoph asked her at one point, for someone like myself, who's drawn to Jesus' teaching, but can't believe the virgin birth or physical resurrection, what am I? Am I a Christian? Her answer, well, you sound an awful lot like me, and I'm a Christian minister. And this is the president of a seminary. One that holds itself out as, quote, grounded in Christian tradition. Is it any wonder that we live in this increasingly post-Christian world? Uh, the thing is, union, union was once grounded in Christian tradition. According to its constitution, when the seminary was started in 1836, its founders were, and I quote, deeply impressed with the claims of the world upon the Church of Christ to furnish a competent supply of well-educated and pious ministers of correct principles to preach the gospel to every creature. Indeed, these principles included, and again, I quote, I believe the scriptures, 
of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. But today we have a very different picture. The seminary, for instance, openly rejects the position that the Bible is without error. <clears throat> it lamented, actually, in a recent tweet that it, quote, received much damnation from fundamentalists over our denial of, of scriptural inerrancy. And it went on to retreat, relinquishing infallibility as the only, is the only means by which you can fully square scripture with a loving and just God. The problem was not that inerrancy was not viable. The problem was that it was just so inconvenient. Indeed, the seminary's definition of a loving and just God is one that embraces and affirms their agenda. And you can look on their website, and you'll agree with me, if you do, that it includes much of what God in His holy uh, and sovereign will has rejected. But regardless of where one stands on inerrancy, there obviously can be no room for debate with respect to the resurrection of Christ. It is the foundation of our faith. If Christ is not resurrected, where does that leave us? Where does that leave Dr. Jones? See, to her in her seminary, Christ is not the Son of God, but rather a series of principles wrapped around a worldview and shaped to an agenda. And while I admittedly wonder whether Dr. Jones really, really knows Jesus, I know the seminary once was founded on his truth. Their, their constitution says that. Sadly, it seems to have turned away. Which presents us with the question that we're going to deal with today. What happens when the people of God turn away from him? Specifically, we're going to look at what the Bible warns us about with respect to turning away from the faith. What leads to one to this, this state, which I will call uh, spiritual, being spiritually shipwrecked? And how do we avoid that, that disaster? It's going to take us to one of the more difficult texts in the Bible. And if you want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to look at Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 8. Before I launch into that word, uh, into the word, a little background might be helpful. We don't know, uh, helpful with regard to the book, we don't know the, the author of Hebrews, but we have a pretty good idea that, uh, of its likely intended audience. Um, and no, they were not German beer producers or Starbucks baristas. Okay, that would be he who brews. <laughs> That's what they teach you at Union Seminary. Um, as you might glean from the title, it was, once, it, it was most likely written to Jews in the diaspora, and they were likely believers, and they were quite possibly in Rome. But here's the thing, they, they were also persecuted for their faith. We know this from chapter 10, verses 32 through 33, which states, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Such persecution could have undermined their faith, obviously, um, and, and, and this is one of the particular concerns the author has. Indeed, a central theme to the book is, is his, his concern for, the, um, for people uh, who are in serious spiritual danger of, of forsaking Christ and, and returning to the ways of their past, to Moses and to the law. So we have to ask ourselves, is there any parallel to this today? Is there any risk of believers turning away? Uh, because of a, uh, from this increasingly, quote, inconvenient truth uh, of the gospel due to cultural pressure? I think we've already answered that question. 
Um, there absolutely is a risk of falling away. Uh, again, what I call spiritual shipwreck. Uh, it's absolutely real. And, and the next question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we get there? How do we end up in this state? And that's going to bring us to our first point. Spiritual shipwrecks result from spiritual stagnation. Okay, spiritual shipwrecks result from spiritual stagnation. That's, that's what these verses are suggesting to us. First, look at uh, verse 511 with me. Concerning him, and that's a reference to Jesus in the previous verse, concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've come dull of hearing. Now, we're going to need to delve into the Greek a little today. I know you're shocked by that. Um, but bear with me, but it matters. The, obviously, you know, the original text matters in all of our exegesis of Scripture, and here uh, it's really important. Um, so the first, the first thing I, I want you to note is that verb translated, you have become, okay, which is in the perfect tense. Okay, it suggests that the state that's described here, being dull of hearing, is a result of a past, probably a recent past action, okay, that has an ongoing result. What I mean that is that, that these people are not just innately dull of hearing, okay? They, they, once, they once knew, they once heard. Um, moreover, another way of looking at it is that we've got some serious black backsliding going on here with this. Second, that word that's translated dull of hearing here, nafroi, it literally means lazy or sluggish, okay? So we may need to read this as, um, you're not even trying to understand, or as the message translation says, you've picked up on this uh, bad habit of not listening. Okay, what does that look like? Well, any of, anybody who's a parent in here and has tried to teach their kid, you know, help their kid with homework, you probably know what this looks like at some point, right? You're, you're working through math, okay, or science, okay, or Greek, or, I, I know, not Greek. Uh, and you're at the kitchen table and the kid's kind of just drawing circles and looking at you like you have six heads and, um, you know, and, and you're saying, you, you gotta try, why aren't you trying, you know? And, and they're like, I don't, just don't get it, right? And you do, you finally end up saying, you're not even trying. I think that's the frustration here that, that the book is expressing here. It's a sense that, that, that people just aren't really willing to put the work in, that they're content to stay right in the, in the, in the immature state, spiritual state that, that they're in um, and not move on. So I ask you, is that stagnation? Is that relevant to you? Does that feel like something? Uh, I'm talking not about like times when God just seems distant, but I mean, you just, you just stop trying. Um, what happens when we do this? Do we then just stay at that level of spiritual maturity that we've attained and just kind of coast? The answer is no. No, um, and why? Let me, let me give you a simple illustration or metaphor uh, of what this looks like. Uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go this afternoon to your kitchen sink, and I want you to fill a big bowl full of fresh, clean water, okay? Nice big bowl of fresh, clean water. Then I want you to put it uh, somewhere outside, maybe on your back deck, okay? P preferably in the shade so it doesn't evaporate, okay? And I just want you to leave it there for a few of our, our delightfully cool summer days here. In, you know, actually wait a month or so, it'll be even a more graphic example. Um, but leave it there for a few days, okay? Then what I want you to do is put on some shorts and a t-shirt, and I want you to go out there and just sit down and hang out next to that bowl for half an hour or so. <laughs> Trust me. After about the 200th mosquito bite, I want you to ask yourself, did that water stay in the same fresh, uncontaminated state as when I first put it there? 
you see the point. Water in a world full of airborne contaminants can't stay in that same steady, fresh state. Um, and we're the same when it comes to the contaminants of this world, to the sin of this world. There's this current flowing through the world that's constantly moving to a sort of a state of deprivation. And that's how it's going to be until Christ returns and frees all of creation from its bondage, as, as Romans 8 tells us. And there's a similar current towards sin that flows through us. If we remain static and not growing in our faith, we're not simply going to stay in that one form. Rather, if we remain static, we're going to become stagnant, just like that water. I want you to consider what the author says about spiritual immaturity in verses 5, 12 through 13. He says, For though, again, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need food. I mean, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. This might be familiar to you all, being consumers of solid food that we have in this church, right? You might trigger something in the back of your mind if you remember first, uh, what Paul said to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. He says, but brothers... But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you're not of the f are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? See, the lack of spiritual growth in the Corinthian church was evidenced by their behavior. They, they weren't acting like Christians, right? Here, in Hebrews, we see a lack of spiritual growth that seems to be manifested by laziness with regard to learning and keeping even the basics of the gospel. The word translated child there, it's a nipios in the original Greek. Uh, it's, it's actually referring to a very young child. Better yet, it's referring to an infant. Okay, infants nurse on milk. We're okay with that, right? It's cute. What's not cute is the image of a nursing 14-year-old. Yeah, I, it's not pleasant. It should be disturbing to us all. But, but that's what we're looking at here. Um, so what do the spiritually mature look like? What does it look like to eat solid food? Verse 14 says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we see discernment here requires training, again, developed by constant practice. It requires constant prayer, intentional study of the word, actively seeking out the leading of the Holy Spirit. When these things are absent from our lives, we stagnate. I want to touch briefly on the basics that the author talks about here in verses 6, 1 through 3, because they might... They might raise a question, um, and this has to do with the foundation that the author so loathes having to lay time and again, because um, you may wonder about this list. Uh, it's not necessarily exhaustive, and it's likely targeted at this particular uh, Jewish audience, for one thing, but, but the first thing we see is a foundation of repentance from dead works and a foundation of faith towards God. This is the basis of all Christian faith, as we know from Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Uh, it's also something that they should have been intimately familiar with as Jews who were once wholly dependent on the law. So, so what's the author concerned about with this foundation? Having to lay it again, um, as we noted before, it appears that they were retreating uh, back to old ground. 
retreating to the ground of the law. They were losing sight that salvation is through Jesus, not Moses. And I need to add, it's through his resurrection, his physical resurrection, right? The remaining elementary principles um, also would have been familiar to Jewish believers who would have uh, held on to aspects of their tradition uh, and worship. Um, these things such as ritual washings, okay, it was translated there, and, and the laying on of hands. Again, these are not bad things. These are not dead works. And they're spiritual. And we, 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 we carry them over in our faith with baptism, with the laying on of hands. These are good things. In fact, some speculate that the audience here was an early strand of Messianic Judaism. Um, but in any event, we know that Jesus, the Jews practiced baptism and the laying on of hands, and it would have been familiar to them. And finally, there's the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Again, essential elements of our Christian faith, but also foreshadowed for the Jews long before the incarnation of Christ. <clears throat> As the prophet Daniel noted in, in, uh, in uh, Daniel 12, 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But to summarize the first point, what causes spiritual shipwreck? It's being complacent in one's faith life, really. It's, it's spiritual stagnation. It's not diligently pursuing growth and progress in your prayer life, in your understanding of God's word and in your service to him. And that's a big one. It's demanding again and again an explanation and an apologetic of the same basics uh, of the gospel truth because you, you just didn't want to put the time in to learn it and own it yourself. At its core, at its core, it's forever being discipled and never being the disciple maker. Okay, and that's where we come to our second point. What are the consequences of spiritual shipwreck? Well, the consequences of spiritual shipwreck are, at best, a fruitless life. Okay? And these are the fun verses, verses 4 through 8. And this is a tough passage, so we're going we're to walk through it here carefully. <clears throat> For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves to the Son of God and put him to open shame. So these, these verses raise a challenging question. Is it possible, as they seem to suggest, that one can abandon one's faith and lose one's salvation? Well, we'll get to that, but before we do, just a little bit of background on why exegetically this is hard, this is challenging for us, and it's because a number of the words here, this is the only time they appear uh, in the New Testament. So we can't really look in other parts to get context and understanding. And they're, they're, they're important words. These aren't just and and thus or whatever. These are important words. Uh, the word for crucify again only appears here. The word for renew that's used here only appears here. And in particular, there's the use of the word uh, translated fallen away. Kai para pisantis. Again, only appears here in the New Testament. However, it is used once in the Septuagint, in the Greek Old Testament, we see this word in Ezekiel 22.4 where it's translated becoming guilty. The verse states, you have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and defiled by your idols which you have made. So the word connotes one who really who has turned away from God and in the case of Ezekiel has turned to idolatry and the worship of foreign gods, possibly in addition to God. The question is, does this, does this refer to total apostasy? Uh, is this a case of absolutely abandoning one's belief or is it 
acting in such a spiritually bankrupt way, okay, that you undermine the truth and there's no evidence of faith in your life. Is there a difference? Uh, we're, we're now into some pretty solid food, aren't we? Well, there's at least four ways that Bible scholars have interpreted these verses uh, as best as I, I've been able to tell. Okay, and, and, and they've all, they've all kind of have some issues. The first is that these verses aren't really describing true believers, but rather observers uh, who have tried out the faith and never really committed, right? Um, so, almost but not quite. This doesn't really work. See, the word tasted can't be understood as tasted and spit out, okay? It actually, it means experience. Uh, and, and here's the key thing. The author uses it again in verse 2-9 to describe Christ's death on the cross where he says, but we do see him who was made a little while, uh, for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might, and there's the word, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus didn't just taste death and move on from it. He certainly moved on from it. But he tasted it in its full experience. Jesus died on the cross. Um, I don't believe the, the believers here just tasted belief either, any less than any of you mothers out there have tasted pregnancy, right? Uh, <clears throat> I would also note that, that they were made partakers in the Holy Spirit. You see that, which is to say they became companions in this heavenly calling. So, so to me, these are, these are believers. These are believers. The second suggestion is that the author is, is, is raising a hypothetical, describing a situation that would never really occur in these verses, right? So it's as if to say, you're heading in this really bad direction, and this is what it would look like if you could ever actually get there, even though you can't. Well, let me ask again, I'll ask the parents in the room, <laughs> what would be the point of that? Have you ever said to your child, stop, stop roughhousing this minute? Because even though I'm never going to spank you and I, won't, I will not ever spank you, if you keep it up and I could spank you, it would hurt this much. <laughs> Does that make sense? Does that work? It doesn't. Um, the author here indeed seems genuinely concerned about a very real actuality. Okay, this is clearly a warning of something that will result. A third interpretation, therefore, is, is that we're talking about actual apostasy, actually rescinding one's belief and losing one's salvation as a result. Uh, a good many argue that this, this is the, the, the interpretation best supported by the text itself. The language of falling away, the impossibility of renewal to repentance, coupled with the idea that, that Jesus will not be crucified again, uh, does seem to point to, to salvation or loss of it. Um, but remember, we must read the verses not only according to the text, but also according to the context, including the context of the rest of the New Testament. And, okay, this is what, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a recovering lawyer, and it's what we call statutory construction. Okay, the interpretation of a section must make sense within the overall statute, the overall document, within the overall Bible. Uh, and there's a problem here in that, as you might suggest. The reading suggest. Uh, um, you might guess that the reading suggests our salvation is not secure. Well, the Bible is absolutely clear that it is. Look at John 10, uh, 27 through 30 with me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them 
out of the Father's hand. And John 6.37 reads, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And again, Romans 8.29 uh, uh, through 30, the great, the great plan of salvation says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we know from these verses that God has an absolute plan of salvation through Jesus Christ for all who believe. And I have to ask you today, that's secure, secure. If you don't know Jesus, don't you want that? Don't you want that security? It's the best security you can have. It's better than any 401k, anything. But here's the thing. I don't, I don't think these verses really are talking about loss of salvation when I look at these options. I actually settle for a fourth option, that this is describing a spiritual shipwreck, okay, okay, a turning uh, away from faith in one's life of such dire proportions that those guilty of it are not only worthless to God, but present a danger to his people. Their, their salvation is in jeopardy, but because of their actions, because of the way they're speaking and talking, the salvation of others, maybe. They undermine God's truth. And they absolutely will answer for it. Let's look at the final two verses with me, which modify verses uh, four through six. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those whose sake, uh, for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and, and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. The agricultural metaphor here is both powerful and instructive for us. Okay, not, not referring to eternal damnation of the field, but rather it's looking at the lack of productivity or the productivity of the field. Okay? So the field that produces good vegetation, a useful vegetation, good fruit, it is blessed. <clears throat> but the outcome of the field that yields thorns and thistles it is close to being cursed, right? Which is something shy, just shy of being cursed. And second, it ends up being burned. Again, don't lose sight of the agricultural metaphor here. Burning fields was a common way to remove unwanted plants, okay? Bad stuff as a way of rejuvenating the field. So I'd argue that this is, this is not the eternal flames of hell, but rather a fire of purification. In this case, that which is produced by those who persist in a state of spiritual stagnation leading eventually to the abandonment of God's core truths in their lives, that which is produced by such people is utterly worthless to God. Indeed, you see the same concern expressed here uh, as in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians um, when he's addressing the product of their faith and what they're building their foundation on. He says uh, this much in, in 1 Corinthians 3. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will, not be, sa uh, will, be, sa will be saved, yet as though through fire. Okay? Paul's talking about here for you, for the believers, is what you build up in your life, what you put on the foundation of Christ will be your reward, in particular in the millennial kingdom when we get to reign with Christ for a thousand years. But what you don't build, 
Well, that's going to determine your place as well. In other words, we'll answer for what we do with the gifts of salvation and enlightenment and, unwarranted, and the unwarranted opportunity to be part of God's plan. But here's the bottom line. No matter how you interpret these verses, the best one can hope for from a life of spiritual bankruptcy, from, 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 from spirit, being spiritually shipwrecked and staying in that state, is that he or she will one day stand before Christ with nothing more than a handful of worthless thorns and thistles. And Christ will look upon the product of that life and he'll pull out his blow, church. Let's not be those people. Let's be the, the different people. Um, through God, we can do this. That brings us to our final point. How do we avoid this? We avoid spiritual shipwreck by constantly building on the foundation Jesus laid for us. See, as an alternative to thorns and thistles, we can come forth bearing fruit of the harvest that he called us into. That is what we're called into, right? We know this. We can come forth as disciples made into disciple makers with a legacy of sharing his absolute truth with reckless abandon in a world that desperately needs it. That's what God requires. Through his faithful example, I mean, uh, through his faithful people, he will bring a spiritual response to the decay that things like the Union Seminary example I gave earlier represent. And he'll do it through us if we maintain a consistent, robust prayer life, a dedication uh, to growing in the word, a commitment to making the glory in God of God and the salvation in Christ known to all through our words and through our actions. Indeed, God will do the work. We can't forget that we are pots and he's the potter, but he wants to use us. He wants to use each of you if your heart is in Christ. He wants to use you. I want to close with a positive example of lives lived in light of God's light and not in spite of it. This, this couple up here, um, they're very dear to me in my life. Their names are Tom and Al Porter, and um, that's because they happen to be my in-laws. Not everybody's going to use dear and in-laws in the same sentence. I understand that. Uh, but I can because they're the best in-laws out there. And yes, they are better than yours. <laughs> but you, they've also been something much more to me. They've been examples of lives lived to serve God through serving others. See, Tom was in his early 20s when he joined the army, and he was serving, uh, and he served in, Korea, in the Korean War. And while he was there, he lost both of his legs to landmines. The trauma he endured was excruciating. In fact, we just had breakfast this last week and talked about it, and, um, and, and he went through months and months of pain and obviously affected his life. Deeply, but I'll tell you, anybody who knows Tom, and anybody, uh, you know, would anybody who knows Tom all of his life, or at any point of his life, could testify that the words "Why me?" they're not in his vocabulary. No, he he persevered. While he was recovering in San Antonio, uh, Tom was cared for by a young physical therapist, also with the army, a beautiful, noble woman of God, who was poured into caring for our wounded really all of her life. He charmed her enough uh, that she agreed to marry him. And from there, Tom and Elle went on to raise four children. One of those was a little girl that had been neglected and abused in the foster care system <clears throat> and came to them at the tender age of two, very weak, very broken. 
they loved on her and they loved her back to healing. And then they took her on as their own and they raised her up. That little girl is kind of precious to me because she, she happens to be Mrs. Amy Zaccaroli. And I don't know what I would do without her, honestly. And more recently, Tom and Elle poured their lives into mentoring wounded soldiers who were returning from Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think about this. They didn't shy away from, from the tragic circumstances of, of Tom's past, that, that trauma that he went through. Now, they embraced it and they, and they chose to relive it on behalf of others. They knew the unique position they were in one of truly understanding what these young men and women were going through. Tom never had to utter the words, I can't imagine what you're going through, because you know, he lived it. He did understand. Um, and the more I learn about them, the more I find uh, that this kind of loving, sacrificial service towards others characterized their whole lives. Okay? This is laying the foundation. This is growing spiritually. It is loving God and pouring into the lives of other people. <clears throat> Rather than rest on the foundation of truth, they built on it and fundamentally shaped the other lives of others, including my own, as a result. You and I, we have that same foundation. The foundation of the love of Christ made manifest through the salvation He provided us by becoming one of us, by suffering torment for our sake, by giving His life on the cross in our place, and by being resurrected, yes, physically resurrected, such that we too may be one with him in eternity on our resurrection. That's the good news of the gospel. I pray you know that news today. I pray that you know Jesus. See, some, some don't want to tell it, but we're not like that. Now I ask you today, what are you going to do to build on that ever so precious foundation? Now, in a moment, I'm just I'm going to close in prayer uh, for our offering. Um, I do want to take a quick moment to remind you that we have a fantastic speaker at our missions lunch today, Dr. Rodney Orr, who's with us here. Um, you want to hear real preaching? Come, come at 12:30. <laughs> uh, and he's it's going to be great. So, I, if you can make it, I hope you you know if you I, I encourage you to come. Okay, let me pray, and then we'll have our offering. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for all that you provide. Thank you so much for being the source of all life and certainly the source of every resource that we have. We came into this world with nothing. We will leave it with nothing. And while we were here, we have nothing apart from your grace. So Lord, help us this morning to build on the foundation that you've given us. Help us also, Lord, to reach deep in, in, into our resources and, and give them back for you, Lord, for they were yours. And help us to bless you with them. Lord, I pray that this church will continue to grow in mighty ways and do wonderful things through you. And I pray for every person in this room, Lord, Lord, that they would know you and you would be their firm foundation and they would build mighty things upon it. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.